This is RMIT University's Art, Design and Media podcast, and you're listening to a special RMIT culture and student-produced series, Literature and Ideas. Welcome to the Literature and Ideas podcast, produced by RMIT Culture in collaboration with Bowen Street Press. This podcast is created on the unceded land of the Woiwurrung and the Boonwurrung people of the Eastern Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge their ancestors and elders past and present. This podcast is about stories, and we pay respect to the voices of First Nations people that have been telling stories on this land for thousands of years. I'm Else Fitzgerald, part of the RMIT Culture team. This series brings to you discussions on writing and ideas made possible by RMIT's cultural programs and collaborations with our key partners. Hosting this episode on migration and detention is Anthea Yang of the Bowen Street Press. For this episode, we've put together highlights from On Migration and Detention, a live panel hosted as part of the RMIT Culture Salon series. You'll hear authors Sugarfei Azar and Zana Freon explore cross-sections between the refugee experience and literature. They share their experiences writing about migration, detention and border policies. Iranian journalists, I did not want my voice to be silenced in prison and home or my dismembered body found in the desert around Tehran, following repeated arrests and interrogations. Shukafer Azar is a journalist and writer who moved to Australia over a decade ago as a political refugee. You're hearing her read from her latest essay, The Seventh Way whose great king, Cyrus, recognized human rights 3,000 years ago and left a memory for us in his famous cylinder. And on the other hand, today has the highest rate of repression of freedom and human rights. Today, one who thinks and writes freely about freedom and human rights, or like Muhammad Mukhtari, Muhammad Puyande, and Dr. Ahmad Tafazzoli, in the so-called chain murder by regime, by the secret gang of the Ministry of Intelligence and Security brutally murdered, or like Siam Zandi, is imprisoned in his apartment to commit suicide due to insanity, or like Ibrahim Nabavi and Masoud Behnud, is forced to make televised confessions against himself as a result of torture and threats. Or like Nasrin Sotude and Mohammad Nurizad, their voice is muffled in the corner of the prison. Or like Zahra Kazemi, Saidi Sirjani, Satar Beshti and Sasan Niknafs are tortured and killed in prison. Or like Jafar Panahi, work prohibited and exit prohibited. The seventh way is escape. Shukafer's first novel, The Enlightenment of the Green Gage Tree, was shortlisted for the 2020 International Booker Prize and Australia's Stella Prize in 2018. It was also nominated for the Penn American and the U.S. National Book Award. So I was a journalist in Iran. I always want to dedicate my life for writing as a journalist and also fiction writer. But I had no English, so I came to Australia with no English and... 
It was really hard. It was really hard. The only thing that I said to myself was that, Shukufa, you don't have language, you don't have your culture and country here, but what you have is freedom. Zana Freyan is a multi-award-winning author of books for children and young adults. Her novel, The Bone Sparrow, explores a refugee child's experience in an Australian permanent detention centre. Here's Zana reading an excerpt. When Eli left his old country, he had to come by truck with his little brother. There were 67 of them, all squished so tight in that truck that their chests ached with the pushing of their breaths. Even though there wasn't nearly enough air in there for 67 people, and even though they kept asking and begging and pleading the driver for more air, that driver just turned his radio right up and kept going. When those doors finally opened, Eli, he was the only one left breathing. Eli said his little brother looked like he was sleeping, all scrunched over with his bum in the air and his legs tucked in and his feet popped out the back like he used to do when he was asleep. Eli said his mum had a photo of his little brother asleep like that from when they were on holiday one time. Eli said when he saw his little brother, just sleeping but for his bluish colour and the dribble of blood coming out from his mouth, he was glad his mum had already been killed by the soldiers because she wouldn't have to think of his brother being dead every time someone said holiday or beach or even just when she saw a kid in a red T-shirt and shorts. Eli told me that his brother dying made his heart bleed so hard that the ache never went away. Eli was the only one left alive from that truck. I thought that meant he had something important to do. In the early 2000s, the Howard government took a hard stance against asylum seekers in Australia. Zana wrote her book in response to the media spin surrounding these events. I wrote The Bone Sparrow because I was seeing this narrative in the media um, and it was so negative and so dehumanising and it was, for me, a way of processing that information, that, that world we live in and also the idea that everyone was falling for it. You know, we were, we were being fed these lies and we were believing it. And I think there's a really interesting moment in Australian history you know, it probably goes back well before then, but for me it felt like the, the defining moment was the Children Overboard Affair in 2001. We will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. There's something to me incompatible between somebody who claims to be a refugee and somebody who would throw their own child into the sea. It, it offends the natural instinct of protection. We now know that the events of the Children Overboard Affair were misrepresented. Mr Ruth, there's nothing in this photo that indicates these people either jumped or were thrown. Well, you're now questioning uh, the veracity of what is being said. Those photos are produced as evidence of the fact that there were people in the water. But this skewed narrative about asylum seekers took root, and it shifted public opinion towards an incredibly hostile view of those seeking refugee status. And the way we talk about asylum seekers and refugees has just become more and more inhumane. There were again directives back in, I think it was 2012... Um, maybe 2013, where there was a directive to change the term to illegal maritime arrivals. So to change away from refugees and asylum seekers to illegal maritime arrivals and talk about transferees because that dehumanises people. Although Zana has no lived experience as a refugee, she did extensive research on what life was like for asylum seekers being detained. When I first started researching it, I'd found a whole lot of these redacted incident reports that were coming out of the detention centres. And even though they were really heavily redacted, it was quite amazing seeing the information that was there and the overall feeling that was, that was coming from these statements. And you could really get a really strong sense of what life was like from these statements. And so I had that research. I had some aerial footage. I had some photographs. Um, 
but there was not a lot of information coming out about what what it was actually like in the detention centres, especially because they were offshore. We weren't, you know, there wasn't much access. It was out of sight, out of mind and very gated. Amid those pages of blacked out text, she also found drawings. So the picture I always remember was of a, the part of it I remember was that the sun, so you, this child had drawn a picture of themselves behind a wire fence. And I think she was saying, you know, please help me or something horrible but the thing that really got me was that the sun in the sky was really angry and you know I had young kids and I was looking at saying you know my kids draw a sun and it's either just a sun or it's got a stupid smiley face on it but someone you know this this child the same age has drawn a picture of a of an angry sun and and how would you be feeling to to draw an angry sun it was something that was so I just couldn't comprehend how you must be feeling to draw in that way and so I looked at more and more of these pictures and that got me inside the headspace. But then I also found things like photos of two little girls who were playing in the rain and one was jumping in a puddle and there was such joy on their faces. And it was, it was that moment that I went, okay, so however I write this, that has to be the focus is how you can find joy um, in what must be, you know, one of the most horrible places on earth. When I was camp in Christmas Island, I want to start writing, you know, as a journalist, I want to interview people and ask them what they're feeling, because it was new for me too, and I had no any idea when I come to Australia, they keep me in the camp, mm. so I thought, so, like Europe, I think, you know, you go to society, but the process of immigrating also is, you know, going on, but it was very new for me, and I saw lots of people that they been there for more than three, four, five months, when I came to Australia, it was October 2010, and it wasn't like later that, like, Behruz Buchani been mm. in the camp for six years, but it still was very unique situation to see what really people think, and and then I asked some immigration officers to, am I allowed, can you give me some, you know, recorder or something? They said, laugh to me. I said, what do you think? And then later we see that in the, what happened to Papua New Guinea, they even don't, you know, Australian government, democratic country, they even don't let journalists go to the island. For Sugar Fay, the message to asylum seekers on Christmas Island was crystal clear. You are not entitled to your stories you are not allowed to have a voice. But the impact of Australia's anti-asylum seeker policies goes way beyond its detention centres. When she pitched a screenplay idea to a friend, Shikafe saw echoes of the same bias. And uh, I asked him that I want to do about this topic, and he said, what's the topic? I said, I want to do a magic realism, a screenwriting, all based on true stories of asylum seekers in uh, Christmas Island. And he said, Shukufe, no. Ah. And I said, why? He said, all of the movies in Australia founded by government first. And government choose, they don't say that, they don't, you know, announce it, but it is what really happened. They choose which topic you're doing that. First of all, if it is asylum seeker, no. If it is love story, maybe yes. It, you know, <laughs> and it's true. It's happened. Just two weeks ago, I talked with him, and he said, "Shukufe, no, you can write as a novel, maybe, uh, but as a movie, cinema, because it's huge money coming by government. Government just can't say no, and they say no." Like Shukufe, 
Zana also experienced barriers trying to bring stories about asylum seekers and refugees to a larger audience. When she was looking to publish The Bone Sparrow, she had difficulty finding a publisher willing to take on the novel. So when I wrote The Bone Sparrow, I sent it to my publisher at the time and they said, no one wants to read it, like, no one wants to read this stuff, it's too hard, put it in a drawer. And I went, okay, and I thought, I'm going to keep, you know, I'm going to keep fighting, see if I can, see if I can find a home. And I sent it to all the publishers that were open for submissions in Australia, I sent it to a whole bunch of agents. No one wanted to see it, or no one was interested in, in, in publishing it. And then I sent it to an agent in the UK who picked it up immediately and, and, sh and she ran with it. And then when she was flogging it around the publishers, it was that week that there was a, a refugee boat that sank and there were children's bodies on the shore and that absolutely, without a doubt, was the reason I got so much interest. I have no questions about that. Because uh, I, I understand that Australian like to read more English from English writers, which is good, but also it shows that they know less about other parts of the world. So in Perhaps part of the problem in Australia is a lack of access, willing or otherwise, to other cultures and language groups. In an English-dominant country, translations are often undervalued and underrepresented. In Iran, we really appreciate translators. Mm. Always name of translators is on the book, on top, mm. on the cover, under the name of the writers, to show how much we're accepting other literatures. This is part of the culture that I say I love in Iran. And so in Australia, it was really difficult. Shukafei's novel, The Enlightenment of the Green Gauge Tree, was originally written in Farsi. She experienced firsthand Australia's monolingual culture when trying to find a translator for her novel. So I sent my book, when it's finished, to many, I was, you know, perhaps I was working on the cloud. <laughs> I thought I sent to Penguin and all big publishers, and they say, hey, Shukufe, you are a good writer. <laughs> but none of them care at all. So <laughs> they sent, they didn't say, even they didn't respond my email or mail, and some of them sent back the package of my stories printed even didn't open it, they just sent it back. Until I found Wild Dingo Press in uh, Melbourne. And thanks God, they like it and they publish it. And it's difficult. But in case of translating, Farsi is not a common language. Chinese is much more common language now. And Farsi is not. And the translator should know English as good as Farsi. So it still is very difficult to find translator. But I was lucky to find one, and they worked with me, and uh, so the whole process done. And it took me two years and a half to finish my novel, and also it took me like three years to finish translator and find publisher and get published. So it's five years process. There's no lack of diverse voices in Australia. The challenge is in getting those voices heard. I think there's real power in small press. So I've certainly found that and, you know, I'm with big publishers as well as some smaller publishers. But I find that quite often bigger publishers are looking for... They're, they're commercial, so they're, they're looking for what will sell. And, you know, and it is a problem with Australian society is that, you know, the, these books don't sell, certainly not compared to, to other books, and especially perhaps in, in children's and YA market. So I think it, it's, a, it's a problem with the publishing industry as a whole. And as we've seen with the lack of diversity in publishing all around the world, it's not 
it's not an issue with who's writing because there are, there are lots of authors writing, but it's a problem with who's deciding that these books are valued and that these authors' voices should be heard, and it goes right to the top. So we need to have, we need to have great diversity at the, at the top of the publishing houses in order for, for the writers to get space. Both Zana and Shukafe acknowledge the impact that literature can have on important issues like migration and detention. If people can't look at facts for whatever reason because it's too hard, because they feel too guilty, because they can't cope with it, then you go in through narrative and people get the information and they, they understand it, but on a very human level. As Shukafe points out, here in Australia, writers can provide these insights without fear of being punished for what they create. We have some example in Iran that the writers been arrested just because they wrote and kept in the, their own computer at home. They didn't even publish it. But then they sentenced for five years because you wrote this story. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. And so I think it's very important. You know, I always, maybe it is my character, I always try to see more positive things. Not there is not a negative things. There is always negativity everywhere in this world about race, about gender, about, I don't know, your background, about your, you know, your hair color, about your fat, about, you know, <laughs> whatever. But how we can deal with that, to me, is just to look what you want and focus on this on the positive way and go on. Otherwise, if you want too much, cons- you know, focusing on negative way, we just, I, in my opinion, we republish negative, way, negative things, you know. Zartosht, um, we say. Zartush is an ancient philosopher and um, Iranian ancient philosopher and prophet. He said that for fighting with darkness, you don't need sword, you need candle. So this is the way that I choose to live. So I think it's the be- best way to fight with the ignorance. Human beings are members of a whole in creation of one essence and soul. If one member is afflicted with pain, other members uneasy will remain. If you have no sympathy for human pain, the name of human you cannot retain. I may never see democratic Iran in my life, but I can write in the hope of that day as I believe that Iran is not just a small and insignificant country. Iran is a great culture and civilization to which human history owes. To understand this, one must study the history of Iranian civilization. Even today, And that was a final reading by Shukafe of The Seventh Way. Content for this episode was drawn from an RMIT culture salon as part of a series exploring creatives responding to crises, hosted by Astrid Edwards. You can check out Shukafe's full essay at rmit.edu.au forward slash culture. I'd like to thank Shukafe Azar and Zana Freon for sharing their readings and for joining us as part of RMIT culture's salons, which aim to bring together our brightest writers, artists and thinkers. The production team for this episode of the Literature and Ideas podcast was Anthea Yang, Chris Alfonso, Hayden Spurrell and Lauren Webster. The supervising producer was Carly Godden.